0: wonderful. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we're presently in a series on Exodus looking at how the people of God, Israel, were drawn out to be drawn in, drawn out of Egypt and the bondage to slavery and brought into a wonderful relationship with God. And we've seen over the weeks how our story is the same. We've been brought out to be brought into a relationship with the Lord. And here in Exodus chapter 20, we're looking at the Ten Commandments and the gracious path of life. The Ten Commandments aren't written by some harsh taskmaster that's looking on from afar. They're looking on by a Father who loves us and knows our names and is seeking to help us for our good and His glory. And so we're going to be... Looking at chapter 20, verse 13, but to enjoy the context, we're going to read from chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Lord, your word is kind Your word is encouraging. Your word is wonderfully fatherly. Lord, I thank you that as we take our seats today, we take our seats not primarily to hear a preacher, we take our seats to be addressed by you. Lord, you are the good shepherd. You are a faithful father. And so, Lord, as we sit here today, we sit here as your chosen people, a treasured possession. Lord, speak to our hearts. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, just recently I was on Facebook and I found, I came across a a group of paintings that immediately stunned me and were really quite incredible to me. It was a short video and the video started with three wonderful pictures. One was a countryside view, one was a city view, one was a seaside view. And they were instantly stunning to me. the caption that came with it is there is more to this than meets the eye and as the camera started to go in on these wonderful pictures you realize oh my goodness they're not actually paintings at all they're pictures in fact they're not even really pictures they're models but these things are about a meter thick and what they'd go on to describe as they talked to the sculptor who had actually made them is they'd been put together from trash from the side of the road And so you first saw it from afar, and you thought, that is a stunning picture. But as you get close, you realize there's a Barbie doll in there, there's a hairdryer in there, there's some straws in there, there's some bits of food. You're like, what is this all about? But it is a stunning picture. But as you get close, you realize there is so much more to these things than meets the eye. And in so many ways, I think this sixth commandment that you shall not murder works in exactly the same way. There is so much more to this than meets the eye. And when you get close and you start to look around, you see, oh my goodness, there's so much more to this than meets the eye. As you walk through the first five commands, as we did just then, as we read it through, I think you can't help but be convicted and challenged by them, can you? When you actually engage with the material and think about this is God's commands for my life, you realize this is challenging, this is provoking, this is convicting. And you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any idols. The Lord wants us to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. He wants to ensure that you don't make any idols with your hands, but you also don't make any idols with your hearts. He wants to be first in our hearts. And when you hear that, you think, oh, that's, that's challenging. Because there's other things that crowd in on my life that are also very attractive to me. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Never use his name in a way that is frivolous or false or insincere. And you realize, "Ah, oh, that's quite challenging too. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. A day given over to the Lord, given over to enjoying the Lord, pointing to the Lord, worshipping the Lord for the rest of your days. Honor your father and your mother. Not honor your father and mother if they're worthy of it. Honor them. Honor the root from which you came. They made you, humanly speaking, to so give yourself to honoring them. To thanking them, being grateful for them. You know, you can't help, I think, but as you go through the first five commandments, be convicted and challenged to your hearts, can you? But then you get to this sixth one, you shall not murder, and you want to high-five each other at this point. Because at this point you think, thank the Lord, here is one that I have not done. You just want to go and have a corporate high-five, and you wonder why are they even preaching on it? This is going to be like a little pick-me-up after the first five weeks of difficulty. Because at first face value, you think, thank goodness this does not include me. It's like light relief to the first five. You think, if there was a commandment that I could probably get into heaven on the back of, it would surely be this. But, what I want to explain to you this morning is there is so much more to this command than first meets the eye. Kent Hughes, in his wonderful commentary, says it this way. He says, just about the only commandment everyone still seems to accept today is number six. No one approves of murder. Homicide is still a criminal act. However, when we study the sixth commandment carefully and come to understand its full implications, we find that maybe no commandment is more blatantly and brutally violated than this one. Well, having studied this this week, I can agree with him that perhaps no commandment is more blatantly and brutally violated than this one. There is so much more to this than meets the eye. And understanding that the commandments are God's gracious path to life, I don't want us just to skip on over six as if, oh, thank goodness, it's no big deal. I want us to understand what exactly is it so that we may walk in the light of it. And ensure that in our hearts and through our hands, we're not murdering anyone. But we're honoring and worshiping God as we're called to do. So four points this morning. Four sub-questions, if you will, that are going to help us to get our hands around you shall not murder. Four things, and here's the first. Number one, why is this command so important? See, that can sound like an odd question because you can instinctively think, I think, well, of course it's important. And you know, I think in many ways, this command, without doubt, it can, be like, can, can seem like a completely obvious and therefore somewhat redundant one. Because you think, surely everybody understands universally that you shall not murder. Minimally in the Western world, surely everybody understands that. I mean, if we went out today and we interviewed a thousand people in Hornsby City Centre and said, hey, what do you think about murder? Do you think it's wrong? I can almost guarantee to you that a thousand people would say, yes, it's wrong. Of course it's wrong. Okay, here's my question. Why? Well, because it's, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, it's unkind. You know, you shouldn't do it. It's just not right. It's not a good thing to do. Why not? Who made that rule up? Well, you know what? We just shouldn't be doing it. We should treat other people like we want to be treated ourselves. Uh Uh-huh, sounds like something out of the Bible. But why? Why should we treat people like we want to be treated ourselves? Why should we not go around murdering people? And I think at this point, people are looking back at you thinking, you are a weirdo, you're strange. Of course, this is wrong. But eventually, they might... Tick on and think, I've got to give a fuller answer. And they might say something like this. Well, listen, if society is actually going to work well today, if it's actually going to operate, if it's actually going to function, we can't go around killing each other, right? So it's wrong. Good answers. But none of them are actually God's answer for why this is wrong. And if we don't understand God's answer for why murder is wrong, we will always be tempted to bend on this and class some things as murder and some things as not. Listen, when it comes to understanding why God says murder is wrong, the answer is simply this. The reason why murder is wrong is biblically defined is because all men and women are actually made in the image of God himself. That's why murder is wrong. Because humankind, men and women, you yourselves, the individual looking back in the mirror at you, has been made in the image of God. And that's why murder is wrong. You see it here in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, right in the creation story, verse 26 and 27, this is what the Lord says. It says, Then God said, As the very pinnacle of creation, the very pinnacle of all that is taking place, God makes men. Men and women, he makes them. But he designs us by the Godhead himself to be his image bearer. You and I the image bearer of God. See, correctly understood, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, correctly understood, these verses leave no room for racism. Because to understand these verses, to understand people from every tribe and language and nation have all been made in the image of God. And therefore they all have value and worth and dignity. None higher or lower than the other because we're all image bearers of God. Make sense? Likewise, correctly understood, these verses leave no room for classism or sexism. As if I'm better than you because I'm higher class. Or I'm better than you because I'm a woman or a man. No, the Bible makes it clear. God made us in His image. We are all equal in value and worth and dignity because we are all image bearers of God Himself. And correctly understood, these verses likewise leave no room for murder. See, when someone is murdered... They are murdering somebody made in the image of God. God has designed humanity to be the closest thing to him in terms of his image bearing. And that's why he says you shall not murder. Because to murder an individual, they are murdering somebody who's been made in the image of God himself. Who has value and worth and dignity as an image bearer of God. That's a bit different then, isn't it, to what often we'd give as an answer just to, oh, it's unkind, we probably shouldn't. No, we shouldn't because they're image bearers of God. So number two, what does this command then prohibit? Simple, isn't it? You shall not murder. But what does that actually include? What does that mean? Well, here's the best description I can give you. Murder is the unjust killing of a legally innocent life. That's what it means to murder somebody. It means to unjustly kill someone who is actually legally innocent. So be very clear that this commandment does not prohibit self-defense. It doesn't. Which is kind of interesting. In Exodus chapter 2 verses 2 to 3. He says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, then there shall be blood guilt for him. Kind of quirky, kind of strange. It's not that complicated. Here, Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if the sun comes up, meaning i.e. there was another option for him in this minute, i.e. he can see him, he could call the police, he could go get help, but he runs in the house anyway and kills him, that's murder. But if in the night this thief breaks in and he's defending himself and his family... There's no other options. And he doesn't mean to kill him, but he kills the guy. That isn't murder at all. That's self-defense. Make sense? Interesting. This commandment does not prohibit self-defense. Likewise, somewhat controversially but true, this commandment does not prohibit capital punishment. See, we may not have that in Australia, but in many countries they do. And you can make a biblical case for why that's right. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 to 6. This is what God actually says to Noah when he's giving him some description of how this society is to behave. He says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall it be shed. For God made men in his own image. He's making it clear that God has made us in his own image. But if somebody is to murder someone made in his own image, then it is right to bring the justice of God down on that individual and shed their blood as a consequence. We see it in the New Testament as well. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. In Romans chapter 13 verse 4, This is what the Apostle Paul says about the governing authorities of the time. He says, The governing authorities are God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoing. He's making it clear, listen, if somebody murders somebody, then God has put authorities into place so that through them, his wrath will be punished on that individual. This command actually doesn't prohibit that at all. It's not classed as murder when it comes to capital punishment and the consequences of somebody's sin, literally of murder. Likewise, this commandment does not prohibit killing in time of war. See, God himself talks about war. Many occasions in the Old Testament, God sends Israel into battle and he claims that he is a warrior God who will fight with them. Jesus at one point in the Gospels is with a centurion. and When the centurion is inquiring of him, he tells him to go and sin no more. But he doesn't say, go and sin no more, and that means quit the army. He never says that. Same with Cornelius in the book of Acts. There's no reference at any point To God saying to Cornelius, hey listen, now that you're a God-fearer, you need to quit what you are. And what he actually was, was the head of a Roman regiment. But people gathered around him. There is clearly a time, as biblically defined, when a war is just. I.e. for the defence of other image-bearers of God, this nation needs to be dealt with. This command does not prohibit that at all. No, this command prohibits the unjust killing of a legally innocent life. That's what's on view here. What does that mean then? Well, it means murder in cold blood, for example. When somebody is murdered for something or for someone, But they are legally innocent. It is unjust. That is murder before the Lord. Murder in cold blood. It also includes manslaughter with zeal. I.e. you get into a fight and you don't mean to kill somebody, but you do. That's murder as biblically defined. You murdered them. You shouldn't have even been fighting in the first place. How dare you manslaughter them with zeal? And likewise, this command includes negligent manslaughter. I.e. murder or death that comes about through someone's negligence or recklessness. I.e. driving along with a phone in your hand, which is an illegal move. And then somebody dies as a result. As biblically defined, that's classed as murder. Where do you get that from? Well, not my head. Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 to 29. It's a really quirky verse, but it's, it's true. He says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. And its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. It's quirky because we don't all have oxes anymore, so it can be hard to get our head around. But here's the point. If your ox gets out of your garden and it goes and kills somebody, if it's not done it before and you've never been warned before, it's an accident that wasn't actually murder. But if your ox has been around the shops before, it keeps getting out the fence and people keep saying, that's going to kill somebody. You need to tie it up and you don't. And it breaks out the fence and it kills somebody. That's murder. You've been negligent. You've been warned that that was going to happen, and you've not taken it seriously. They've died as a result, and so as Biblically defined, so now should you. What this command prohibits is the unjust killing of a legally innocent life. Now, my third question then is, what does it look like to keep this command today? Which is important, because we could all go away from this and think, okay, very interesting, I'll try not to murder people in cold blood, and I will keep my ox really tied up from here on in. You know, we have to try and work out how does this function in our lives today? How does this make a difference in our lives today? Because our culture is obviously different to what theirs was. Well, first and foremost, then obviously it means that we must not murder in cold blood. It means we must not ever commit manslaughter with zeal. It means there should never be negligent manslaughter on our hands. But there are also some more things I think that affect us today that affect us here in Sydney, Australia, that this command very clearly prohibits. I think there's four things. Here's the first. The sixth commandment clearly prohibits abortion. Very clearly. Why? Because it's the murder of a life. Not the potential for life, but life. See in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 14a. God says, "For you have fo- for you sorry you have for you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The truth of Scripture, the promise of Scripture is, you've been made by God." It was God that made that fertilization possible. It was God that took that embryo and planted it into his mother's womb. And it's God that oversees the whole process. The potential for life then doesn't happen when that baby actually comes out. The potential for life happens right there when it is formed. For you have formed my inmost parts. You've knitted me together in my mother's womb. You know, just this week ahead of this message, I was reading the latest New South Wales abortion bill. It is horrible. You know, as I read it through, I I was shocked by what I was reading. It's going to make it legally possible in New South Wales to have an abortion pretty much for any reason at any point. And what I found out as I was reading this through is one in ten babies that are aborted are usually aborted alive. So in one room you can have a 22-year-old baby that's been born that all the doctors and nurses are coming around to try and save its life because it's life. And in the next room a 22-year-old baby that's been aborted the mum doesn't want it and so they leave it to die legally. The world is going mad. It is murder. You know, I... You look back now before the Second World War and you had the Nazis just laughing and joking before they slaughtered the Jews. Well, welcome to what that looks like in 2019. Even this week, you may have seen pictures of politicians cheering, Yes! There should never be a place of that. Minimally, even if you disagree with what the Bible says, everything that is taking place is tragic. It's not to be celebrated. And my friend Sovereign goes, I don't want to... Encourage you then to be angry with the politicians. No, I want to encourage you to pray for them. Pray that God will use them. That he will bring his good through them. Abortion, without doubt, is murder. Even in the first century AD, the church was picking up on this. In a culture that by and large would be willing to have a baby and they go, oh, I don't like it and just leave it out. There wasn't the same value for life. It was the church that started to realize, that's wrong. John Calvin, then just a few hundred years ago. He said, for the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is therefore a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house rather than a field... Because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, then it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb of its mother before it has even come to light. So well said. Even hundreds of years ago, realizing this isn't the potential for life, this is life. How dare then we go inside and kill a child on the premise of, oh, it's not really life. It's the potential for life. Sovereign Grace, it is life and it is murder. Do not be fooled. It is murder before the Lord, a taking of a legally innocent life because the parents don't want it. It's wrong. The sixth command clearly prohibits abortion. Number two, the sixth command clearly prohibits suicide. See, I think this is a particularly sensitive one because it can be very painful and a difficult topic for particularly those that have experienced suicide, either in your family or amongst your friends. It's difficult. But it needs to be talked about. Why? Well, because suicide is self-murder. You have been made in the image of God and you may have decided my life is pointless, but God looks on and says, no, your life is precious. Because you've been made in my image. You have value and worth and dignity because you've been made in my image. Suicide is attempting to murder yourself. It is a sin. Now be clear, it is not the unforgivable sin. And time doesn't permit to go through in detail what the unforgivable sin is, but I can assure you it is not suicide. But it is sin. It is wrong before the Lord. It is the murdering of self. In the Bible then, there are five instances of suicide. Judges chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 31, 2 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 16 and Matthew 27. Five clear instances in the Bible of suicide and in each and every case, the suicide is a result and really encapsulated in the very act is one of shame and defeat And it is sinful before the Lord. Why? Because this image bearer of God effectively looks at God and says, well, I don't want you anymore. I don't trust you anymore. I don't want you sovereign over my life. I'm going to be sovereign. And even though God returns and says, I'm with you. I'm for you. I love you. I will give you purpose. I will give you grace. My grace will be sufficient for you. That individual looks back and says, no, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I don't want you. I'm ending this. They come to a place of feeling that their life is pointless when God has always designed their lives to say, no, you are precious because you've been made in my image. The Sith commandment, my friend, very, very clearly prohibits suicide. Now and again, I chat to individuals and they say, I just can't see why suicide is wrong. I can assure you, it certainly is. It is self-murder. And I have been horrified by the increased talk in our society today about suicide. I mean, when I was a kid, when you got really upset with your parents, guess what you did? You said, that's it, I'm running away. I'm leaving. I remember one time when my parents, I said to my parents, right, I've had enough. I'm leaving. And my dad said, no problem, I'll help you get your bags. And he got the loft ladder down and he was up there. He's like, which one do you want to take? And I'm like, oh, hang on, I don't think I'm ready. But now kids don't say that. They say, that's it. I'm going to end my life. We didn't say that 25 years ago. because now we speak like that. It is murder. It is self-murder. It has no place among us. The Sith Commandment clearly prohibits suicide. and Number three, the Sith Commandment also prohibits euthanasia. So, euthanasia is just a really kind way of saying assisted suicide. Or, if you will, assisted self murder. That's all euthanasia is. It's an individual who has decided, because of what I'm walking through, I'm going to end my life in my time now. So, they murder themselves. And to me, this is just further signs that the world is going mad. I mean, on the one hand, our society is busy trying to reach teenagers and young adults with say no to suicide. Beyond blue, different different communications and charities are working hard to seek to prevent suicide among young people, realising it is increasing, it is wrong, it wrecks people's lives, so they shouldn't do it. That's a good thing. should be applauded. But what is really kind of weird is at the same time in many countries, particularly like Switzerland and the Netherlands, Suicide in old people, that should be encouraged. What? So we save these guys, but we promote it amongst these guys. We do all we can to stop it with these guys, but amongst older people, when they want to take their life, well, that's, that's probably fine. Let's hold their hand. It's crazy. And what's actually happened, if you study Switzerland and the Netherlands, what's actually happened in those countries is people are getting old and they actually feel a pressure to go through with assisted suicide because they're aware they are being a burden on the family. Don't think this is just people deciding for themselves. Very often not. 46% of times those individuals have felt a pressure from family to end their lives. God is sovereign over our time. From life's first cry to final breath, he commands our destiny, not us. Assisted suicide is assisted self-murder. So I'm not talking here, so I'm very clear, I'm not talking here about termination of treatment. You you may have loved ones, or you yourself might decide, when I get to those days, please don't resuscitate me, I will be with Jesus, don't bother doing anything like that, let me go. It's not talking about termination of treatment. It's talking about termination of life. Termination of treatment just lets an individual continue to die the way God is designing it. But termination of life is taking it from God. It said, I will decide. And as individuals made in the image of God with value and worth and dignity, he's very image bearers. We must never have anything to do with that. You know, this sixth command, it it makes a part. It really starts to hit home, doesn't it? When we start to realize that there really is more than meets the eye. We're not just talking about oxes goring people here. We're talking about real life stuff here in Sydney, Australia. Make no mistake then, this command prohibits murder in cold blood. It prohibits manslaughter with zeal. It prohibits negligent manslaughter. It also prohibits abortion and suicide and euthanasia. But then there's one more thing that it also prohibits. Something that I think should get all of our attention. And it's this the sixth commandment also prohibits unrighteous anger. See, this is what Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is gathered on a mountainside. He's talking to a load of Jews. Here's what the Jews are thinking. Ten Commandments, boo, I've got it going on. We got this, we got this, we're fine. Murder, woohoo, high five! They were doing exactly what we were doing before the service today. High five, we're talking about murder today. Oh, thank you, Jesus, what I haven't done. That's exactly what they're doing. And then this is what Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. He says, For you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh my. Jesus takes that sixth commandment and he deepens it and transforms it. He helps us to understand the depth of it and the huge significance of it. And what you realize is he communicates with us on this day. Is this sixth commandment then just doesn't just just prohibit murder with my hands. It also prohibits murder with my heart. What does murder with the heart look like? Well, as he's just said, it looks like anger. It looks like hate. It looks like insults that then come out of our mouth. You idiot! Can't believe I have to live with this person. Are you fool? That's effectively saying you're worthless. Somebody that's made in the image of God. Worthy of value and worth and dignity. You fool! You're worthless to me. My friends, we experience this all the time, do we not? If we're honest, we start to see our faces in the crowd. And I, I wish I could say that it's always huge and significant, i.e. when we've been radically sinned against and we're angry before that person. And that, that just happened. But it, but it also happens like this. You're at a traffic light and it's gone green half a second ago. And somebody behind you starts beeping the horn as if their life depends on it. And everything in you wants to get out of the car and give them a piece of their mind. Why? Anger. I hate you. What are you doing, you lunatic? And Christ looks back at you and says, you know what that is? That's murder of the heart. You may not have put a dagger into them, but in your heart you've just murdered them. See, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45a, he explains what we should be doing. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He makes it clear listen, you are God's chosen people, God's treasured possession. And so when it comes then to living your life, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Really love on them, thank me for them, pray for them, commit them to God by his grace. That's what we're commanded to do. But what we tend to do is we find ourselves angry, we find ourselves infuriated. Sometimes in Christianity we say, oh, it's not unrighteous anger, it's righteous anger. No, it's not. It's never righteous anger. It is very, very, very rarely righteous anger, like 0.01% of the time. Okay, It's usually sinful anger before the Lord. And what we need to understand is God would say, that's like murder. And so suddenly the command in verse 13, where you think, high five, is what I haven't done. You realize, well, I'm guilty of that. I would hazard a guess that we've probably all been guilty of this, this week, let alone in our lives. Called anybody an idiot this week? Been irritated with anybody this week? You wanted to punch anybody in the face this week? that's what it is and when we've done that in our heart we need to understand that we are then numbered among the murderers the abortionists the suicidal we stand amongst them guilty as charged so number four what hope then do we have what is our hope as we gather around even this command and we realize, my, it, it, it describes me. I haven't murdered anybody with my hands, but I murder people with my heart all the time. What then is our hope? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us what our hope is in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Take this in and enjoy every word of it. For our sake, God made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, what a happy discovery. Our hope is Jesus Christ Himself. For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Jesus Christ and faith in him, God looks on at the Ten Commandments and says, No, no, I've declared you forgiven of them, because my son has taken your place. My son has paid the consequences of your sin in So that now as I see you, I see you clothed in his righteousness and I saw him clothed in your sin in that day. So I took him who knew no sin and made him to be sin. Whose sin? Your sin. So that through him, you might become the righteousness of God. Oh, what a happy discovery that is, don't you think? Our right, friends, if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, you have been declared righteous, forgiven, done, clothed in the righteousnesses of his Son. That's why grace is so scandalous. He takes my sin. I take his perfection. That's scandalous grace. I'm not that good. Exactly. And that's why you need a Savior. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been completely forgiven of your sin. And my friends, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are right now at this moment guilty of your sin. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that anyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That's your choice. Well, I got a church. Excellent. I go to McDonald's, but it doesn't make me a burger. <laughs> I pray. I read my Bible. Great. Lots of people like, say things and read Bibles. What's the difference? I have to get down on my knee and say, Lord, I take you as my Lord and Saviour. I'm yours. Would you forgive me of my sin? And I rise and I go forth and follow you only, Jesus, now. And He says, Yeah, I will. I will. Here, take my robe of righteousness. I have declared you righteous. Your sins are forgiven. Now rise and go forward and live for me. Isn't it beautiful? My friends, I thank God then for the way God, by His grace, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, He doesn't then just say, okay, sweet. So you can do it. So I did it for you. Excellent. Have a nice life. No, He keeps the commandments. From Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do you not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He came to fulfill them. He was the only one who was completely righteous. He came to fulfill the law, to do what none of us ever could do. And then die our death that we should have paid, so that we may have life and that in abundance. But He did not come... To abolish the law. Why? Because it's a gracious path of life. It's here still to help us. He has brought us out of sin and slavery and brought us into a relationship with him. And he says, listen, these are still here for your good and my glory. So follow them. It'll go well for you if you follow them. So my friends, I want to encourage you then. Would we not then be a murderous people? With our hands or with our hearts. You may be looking on now with fresh understanding that all that that means and wonder, how am I going to do this? Well, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's how you're going to do it. He not only saves you by his grace and clothes you in righteousness, he then gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit in your heart who is busy working you even now, changing you from one degree of glory to another and working in your heart to make you look more like Jesus. So trust him and keep looking up and keep running on this wonderful, gracious path of life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is so wonderfully clear to us. Oh Lord, would you forgive us, for me, for times where I have come across those first four words of you shall not murder," and just skipped along, unrealizing of how incredibly necessary they are to my life. Lord, did you help us then to live in the good of what we've just heard from your word? Would you help us to be people that ensure that we not murder with our hands or our hearts? I look for all those that may be here who are aware that in their lives abortion has been a part of that. Or in their lives suicide or attempted suicide has been part of that. Or that their minds may have gone to euthanasia at different points. Lord, I thank you that Jesus paid it all. (laughs) Jesus paid it all. He took my crimson stain and washed it white as snow. Lord, I do pray for anybody who has experienced those things in their past. In this moment, would they know your forgiveness on their lives? You have washed them white as snow. Past, present and future, it is finished. So would we all stand and worship you as our King. In Jesus' name, Amen.